Multiple students have come forward to complain about misgendering on campus. Student Government Association had a record turnout in its most recent election and a glimpse into the performance of the bearded lady. Published since 1973. I give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. This is Chronicle Headlines. I felt like if I made a big stink about it, um, I would either be labeled as a problem student, or um, I would just be, you know, ignored outright. And I'd be like making a big fuss over something that wasn't really ever going to change. That was former theater design and technology major Nico Gatalko, who dropped out of Columbia last semester due in part to alleged transphobia he experienced. Gatalko, along with two other students, have complained about constant misgendering on campus. To talk more about this story, we have managing editor Blaise Mesa, who spent the past two months reporting on this story. Okay, so Blaise, could you just sum up your story for us? Yeah, so you just heard Nico talk about misgendering and some of the experiences he had before leaving Columbia. Now, my story touches on more than misgendering. It has three students in it, or two or three students in it, and it's a bunch of complaints from different things and aspects. It touches on bathrooms, gender-inclusive housing, uh, misgendering, training of professors. Like, it's a lot of stuff. It's where reading through it, you'll see some diversity initiatives the college does, some things students are complaining about, so it's a lot of kind of back and forth, which is why I could probably talk about this story for hours, but I only have the 30 minutes on the podcast, so it's probably best to also go read the story on ColumbiaChronicle.com, or at our newsstands to get a nice, complete, full picture, but I'm going to try and touch on the major topics as much as possible. So, Blaze, can you tell us what misgendering is? Yeah, so I guess the best way to describe it is probably by explaining it, is if you identify with he, him, or him pronouns, so essentially if you identify as a male, and someone uses she, her pronouns, or they, them pronouns, that is what misgendering is. It's essentially not recognizing you as a male, female, or whatever you choose to identify as. And I know some people, through reporting this story, were like, well... That doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, why is that a big deal? But uh, Hayden Horner, one of the other students that I talked to, identifies as a male, uses he, him pronouns, and says every time he's misgendered, so called she, her, they, them pronouns, it feels like a snap on the wrist with a rubber band. You know, the first time it's like, eh, it's not that bad as long as it's correct and doesn't happen again. But the more it happens, it could eventually make you want to vomit and just kind of throw up. Even uh, someone I spoke to, Shree Mosby Holloway, from the SDI office, said misgendering is an act of violence. So what was the extent of the students' complaints? The student complaints were kind of in different places, especially depending on the student. They had different complaints. For the most part, um, lack of availability of gender-inclusive bathrooms. Now, there are 20 on campus, according to emails I'd gotten from people at the college. But what they were saying is there may only be one in a building or one on one floor. So if it's busy and you're trying to rush to class, well, people are in there. You can't get it, so you may just have to hold it throughout class. Another complaint was being misgendered a lot by teachers and faculty, as we just mentioned. And in one case, uh, one of my students who came forward and complained applied for gender-inclusive housing. And gender-inclusive housing is like um, basically if he identified as a male but was roomed with females, and gender-inclusive housing would have roomed him with people he identified with, 
in the same um, gender, but he wasn't told that he didn't get it. He just showed up one day, and he was with people, and he's like, you know, I'm not a female. I don't identify as a female. I shouldn't be here. That was kind of the the general gist of complaints, but for the most part, the misgendering was a big part. Throughout my time here at Columbia, it has been filled with lots of problems, uh, including uh, teachers and faculty, um, constant misgendering, uh, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it doesn't really matter to me because I am coming from a place of I was told that I would be supported and accepted 100% here. And what was the college's response to all of this? Well, the college had a wide range of responses because there were a wide range of complaints. Um, but one of the first things they brought up was the Gender Inclusive Initiative, and that was a, a five-year program that was started seven years ago. The program is, it's not behind schedule, but when I was talking with Shri Mosby Holloway, she said it was behind. I, they wanted, or the college wanted, after five years, to evaluate the program, get student feedback, and see how it was working, but they still have yet to get all of that feedback and all that data gathered. What the program itself looked at was first name changes, pronoun awareness, all gender restrooms, gender inclusive housing, educational resources, counseling services, and Title IX stuff. Now to get more specific, some things that this program, or at least on the website if you go to Gender Inclusive Initiative at uh, Columbia College, you will see that they have a first change, like a first name change form, which is for the most part ahead of its time when looking at other colleges. I've been speaking with people from NEIU who are at Loyola and Gonzaga, and some of these colleges don't have these first name change forms. And for people who don't know what that is, that's like you go on Oasis and you can change your name. So if you identify as a female, but on Oasis your name is Steve, you can change your name to whatever you want. I know a couple people who have successfully done it, and it's for the most part, what I hear, a pretty easy process. The college also has, under the Educational Resources tab on the Gender Inclusive Initiative, some helpful links, and one of them being a, like a pronoun awareness PDF guide, I guess is the best way to describe it, that basically helps people understand how to use pronoun awareness, which I do not recall other colleges having. So in some parts, they are a bit ahead of the curve, and that was looking more the gender inclusive initiative. Their response was more overall to everything and what the students were saying. But looking at the one case where a student was denied gender inclusive housing and didn't know it until he moved in with females, the college's response was essentially we can't guarantee that everyone gets their housing assignments. It really depends on space when you apply, all that stuff. And that's something you kind of acknowledge when you do apply for on campus housing because you have to like rank which places you'd go to, but the college also said that they should notify everyone who doesn't get gender-inclusive housing. Now, Hayden Horner was the student who came to me and said, I was roomed to females, identified as a male, I had no idea, so the college didn't necessarily have a response for that, but said that they always should be notifying people of it. And then finally, looking at teachers misgendering students or even janitors misgendering students. Another one of the complaints I had received from a student is that they were misgendered by a janitor and they felt in a bathroom and they felt uncomfortable using bathrooms from there on out. So that's why the gender inclusive bathrooms and having enough in certain buildings was so important to him because he just didn't feel safe going in other places. So looking more at misgendering, who at Columbia trains the faculty? 
I spoke with Sheree Mosby Holloway, and she doesn't necessarily do training for teachers. That's the Academic Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office, who I was not able to speak to. But she said that she trains faculty and or staff members, so janitors, people on campus that don't necessarily teach. And when looking at misgendering, there are educational programs that the college has. They're trying to bring awareness to certain things, but sometimes it can be difficult to get everyone to come in. Is there anything else interesting that you found? And then through my reporting, I actually learned that Shree Mosby Holloway had zero complaints from, well, diversity offices. I keep the language broad because there are so many places you can report a complaint that it's not just SDI. Because SDI is a programming office that doesn't actually handle complaints. Same with academic diversity, equity, and inclusion. They also are kind of a programming office. It's no one office's job just to take complaints and complaints alone. But I did learn, uh, at least according to Sheree Mosby Holloway, is that the college doesn't have any complaints from transgender students about, well, necessarily anything. And she had only been at Columbia for about a year, so she really only has what she's been able to write down or collect herself. And I remember thinking to myself, like, zero complaints necessarily a good thing. I talked with a couple people at other colleges, and they kind of said that it may not be the best thing. Um, from what I've gathered that students need to come forward and complain about experiences they've had. That way colleges can allocate resources toward them. Because if they're not getting any complaints, they're not going to try and work on programming or fun things to necessarily help that student body. As bad as it may seem, one of my sources at NEIU said, you know, it's there's only so much money to go around, and if one group is complaining more and another group has nothing, the college is obviously going to help the group who may be complaining more, but there are a couple of reasons why there could be no complaints. Um, some of the students I spoke to said it's not because people are happy and they not that they don't want to complain. In Hayden's case, he didn't know how, or no, in, in Nico's case, he didn't know how, and both, of, both Hayden and Nico said they didn't want to complain and be labeled as a problem student or a student who causes trouble. Like they said, we don't want to be that student, that trans student who complained so they were a little dissuaded from complaining. So what could limit student or complaint factors? Complaining is a real tricky thing. It involves a lot of trust. Um, but she also mentioned, or Mosby Holloway did, that students sometimes complain to other students. And while it's good to talk about your experiences, if you don't complain to the proper offices for the college to handle it, there's nothing they can necessarily do about that. And it kind of leaves things in the dark. But students can complain to the SDI office, student relations and the dean of students office, the academic diversity, equity, and inclusion office, or the equity issues office. Students can also email complaints to inclusion at uh, colum.edu. So there's a couple different ways students can go about it. So what are some things Columbia is doing to ensure LGBTQ students feel comfortable at the school? Well, Columbia is actually doing a decent amount of things. I know Cherie told me five or six initiatives and programs that they were working on, um, but the ones listed in the story involve the RAC, which has come to campus, which helps students kind of find clothing that better fits their identity, or at least the two major ones was the RAC, and then queer, Careering While Queering is an event that um, Cherie was actually pretty excited about, which helps um, LGBTQ people navigate kind of navigate the workforce when people may not be as accepting 
as people would like. I don't think I have to explain too much more about that. Um, those are some of the major things, along with, again, revisiting the gender-inclusive initiative and having the first-name change policies, having the gender or the, the pronoun guide on their website. So, Blaze, is there anything else you think people should know about your story? Well, there probably is. Uh, the story, again, took two months, and I'm, I think it came out to around 2,500 words. So to think that I've covered absolutely every topic in this 20 minutes is kind of a stretch. So if you just go to the website, ColumbiaChronicle.com, or look at the newsstands around the campus and the, the city, you will get absolutely every piece of important information that I have included. Diversity, equity, and inclusion has to be systemic and it has to be sustainable. It has to, every single person in every single department has to have some buy-in. They have to be committed to education. They have to be committed to, um, you know, serving our students and really centering our student experience. That's all for this story, but stay tuned for more. For our next story, we have staff reporter from the Columbia Chronicle, Bridget Ekes, um, talking about her story about the Student Government Association. Um, her story is called Record-Breaking Voter Turnout for SGA Executive Board Elections. So, Bridget, could you just give us a little rundown about what your story is about? Sure. Last week, I covered the five candidates that were running for the executive board, and I went to their Meet the Candidates event, and I got to see what positions um were up for grabs as far as the elections were concerned. And then this week, I went to the meeting on Tuesday and figured out that three people were chosen for new executive board positions next school year. And I think the biggest piece of news to take away from this is that um, they had like the most students voting for elections, which was pretty cool because last year they only had a little bit over 100 people vote for the elections. But this year they had around um, over 500 so it was a pretty big jump as far as like student engagement and voting. And how many candidates were there? Um, in the beginning, so there were five that were running, and then three were chosen for three different positions. Great. And then did you like find out why the voter turnout was like so different this year compared to last year? Um, when talking to the president for next year, she was saying that they just had a lot more senators on the board this year so just more students in general were involved in sga and she thinks that that is what led to getting the word out and more people knowing about the chance that they have to vote for the executive board positions great and then for people who like may not know um what does sga do like why are people voting for other people to be in a higher position you know yeah it's a great question um SGA, Student Government Association, they basically are like a link between the administration and students and also faculty. So it's a way for students to have their voice heard and to have representation within the school. So there are different senators that are a part of SGA. So there's a representative from different departments. So let's say you're in the theater department and you've been having some trouble with classes and stuff or if you've been feeling uncomfortable with how like your courses have been or it can really just stem from anything you can report to your theater chair um, senator and you can tell them about your their issues or um, SGA also holds a lot of events to increase like student engagement and I know that the president for next year of SGA hopes that she can accomplish more like cross-department 
um, collaboration and also more collaboration between like faculty members and students. So they have like a whole host of jobs. It's not just limited to like a couple things, but um, and you don't have to be an SGA to go to the meeting. So you can just be a person of the student body and show up and they actually encourage it because they want people to know um, what's going on. So for someone who may want to run for a position in SGA, how is there any like requirements? Can just anybody run for it or? Um, I think you have to be a person of SGA. I don't think you're it's like because if you want like a president, vice president, you know, VP of something type title, you can't I don't think you can just be someone of the student body. I think you have to be on SGA. Um, but anyone in SGA can run for like executive board positions. I do know that. And who were some of the people that you talked to for this story? Um, so I talked to Jory Roberts. Uh, she is going to be the vice president for next year. She's in the radio department. And she's just super excited about um, making sure that the students' voices are heard. I also talked to Kiara King, who's going to be the president next year. Um, and then I talked to Ashley Moore, who's going to be the vice president of communications for next year. And she was pretty interesting because she wants to use like social media platforms strategically for certain things like using Facebook to facilitate SGA events and like optimizing um, the tool on Facebook where like you can see who's interested and who's going to go and things like that. Um, but she said her biggest push is that she wants to really use Instagram for more uses such as potentially like the highlight page at the top of Instagram using that for like what goes on in every single Columbia building so that students would have a resource to be able to be like, oh, like 916, I don't know what that building is, but they could like go to the Instagram and figure it out. And she also like wants to use it as a form of information sharing, like when the U passes come out or when big like student financial service announcements come out as like a reminder for students like, hey, you can come pick up your U pass here. Hey, you need to do this before this date. Um, and she also said that she wants the page to be fun and interactive for students and suggested like posting memes on it because she wants it to be a place that like students can get information, but a students were a place where students can also like have fun and look at the content. Great. And then what were some of the things that King said she wanted to do as president? Um, like I mentioned before, she wants to do a lot more like cross department um, collaboration and also just more collaboration between students and faculty she spoke a lot about how like faculty a lot of our faculty are part-time and they have a life outside of you know columbia and that we can benefit from collaborating with them and working with them outside of the classroom because they have a lot of offers and things that they can help us with and are the positions um like semester long or are they year long um so for executive board they're year long and if you want to just be like a senator on SGA or be involved in SGA, I believe it's semester long. So I, I think they have applications open right now for next school year. And how often do they like meet and discuss things? Once a week. At the, at the moment, it's every Tuesday at 5 p.m. at the loft in 916. Um, but I'm not sure if that's like subject to change for next year. Great. And then this is just like a personal question for you. Why would you say having like SGA is an important for, you know, a college campus and for students? Yeah, good question. Let's see. Um, personally, I haven't like interacted with anyone on SGA except for through doing this story. But now that I know 
the type of work that they're doing as far as talking with department chair heads and talking with people who are on the board of trustees and making sure that the, the student body is heard to like administration and upper levels of the college. Um, I think it's important because they're there to be like a liaison and they're there to represent, you know, students who may seem like a small fish in comparison to like, you know, the president or the board of trustees or the provost office. So I think it's really important that students have a voice and students have representation because sometimes that might get lost. And do you know if like other college campuses like have something similar to this or is Columbia like kind of unique for this? Um, I would say this is probably a pretty universal thing. It might just like be titled different or named different across different campuses. Okay, great. Um, I think that's all the questions we had. Was there anything else that you think is important for people to know about your story? Mm, I don't think so. I think I just want to let people know that if they're interested in SGA or if you know, they have the slightest bit of curiosity that, you know, all the sources I talked to were super welcoming and friendly. So to not think that they are like a supreme elite amount of students or think that they're like above everyone else, you know, we're all students and we're all on the same playing ground. So if people have any curiosity to the organization that they should just attend a meeting or, you know, reach out via email to one of the senators or executive board members. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Bridget, for telling us about your story. You can check out her story at ColumbiaChronicle.com. Again, her title of the story is Record-Breaking Voter Turnout for SGA Executive Board Elections. On to our final story of the podcast. I have news editor Miranda Manier in the studio to talk about the bearded ladies. Is that That's right, That's correct. Miranda? Yeah, bearded lady. Well, we're already going to need more context to this story. <laughs> Not even but five seconds in talking about it. So this one you can actually find in our print edition as well. What... What exactly is going down? How did you report on the bearded lady this week? Yeah, so um, a local Chicago, what he calls himself a grassroots LGBTQ historian, um, Owen Keenan, has written a lot of nonfiction books about different parts of LGBTQ history in Chicago. Um, and his most recent book is called uh, The Legend of Dugan's Bistro and the Bearded Lady. And... So Dugan's Bistro was this gay nightclub in River North that was open from 1973 to 1982. Um, so it's been closed for about four decades. Yeah, almost. yeah, it's been closed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the disco scene of the 70s was like a really big moment for like the gay nightlife scene. Um, so also Dugan's Bistro was actually there's there's there was a place in New York called Studio 54. Um, that was kind of looked at as, like, the iconic place of the gay nightlife scene in the 70s. Um, But actually, according to Keenan, the Dugan's Bistro opened about four years before Studio 54 and actually started a lot of, like, the disco trends that later became popularized Mm, by Studio 54. So Chicago was, like, where it was at in the 70s. So we we beat New York again. Yeah, we beat New York again. Um, we have more rats than they do, right? Better, yes, yes. I wrote a story on that last year. We we have more rats. Yeah, so more rats and better disco. Um, so Dugan's Bistro had this um, this headliner at midnight and two a.m. from Thursday to Sunday. You could find the bearded lady, who did kind of um, an early 
drag slash burlesque performance where she would come on stage. She would start with her back facing the audience, which she called giving back to the community, <laughs> which I think is so funny. <laughs> um, and then everyone would be like cheering at her, cheering for her. And her, her song when she would start her act was Who's That Lady by the Isley Brothers. So like the Who's That Lady. Okay. So that thing. So everyone would start cheering and start chanting who is that lady and then she would like turn around and like tilt down her glasses and start her act and the act was basically removing like these these heavy layers of clothing that she was wearing kind of like a coat and then it gets like coat windbreaker exactly okay yeah yeah so like incrementally like slightly lighter layers till eventually she would just be wearing this one-piece bathing suit um and so she would be doing this to, uh, there were three songs, Who's That Lady, um, two other ones that were like big hits in the 70s. And basically what would happen is people would scream at her as she was doing this and she would scream back at them and it was a very high energy act. And she would have these, her one rule was that these clothes she was removing couldn't go over her head because she had these elaborate like stylized headdresses on she would stick like lawn ornaments in her beard or in her hair or um in one instance which was owen keenan's favorite um she had a a old rotary telephone in her hair and her beard and then with wire she had a speech bubble suspended Uh out of the telephone and it said hello (laughs) Okay, how long was the bearded lady's hair? <laughs> so, um, so she was there the entire time that Dugan's Bistro was open. She left two times. Once she like left in a huff and stormed out and didn't come back for a couple weeks. And then one time she was actually suspended because of some kind of nightlife drama and then was quickly reinstated because she was so popular. <laughs> so then, as much fun as it is talking about the bearded lady, this mm-hmm. was all in a book. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so the book was chronicling just this like micro piece of Chicago LGBTQ history. Um, so if you if you go to our website or check out our print edition, you'll be able to read my article, which really talks about why it's important to chronicle LGBTQ history because for the most part, that's something that doesn't get written down very much. It just sort of travels by word of mouth. So it's really nice to have it on the page and like a written word. That kind of touches on my next point. I'm assuming that's the answer to my next question, but is that why he wrote down such a very specific moment in history? Yeah, so um, really Keenan's whole point was that so much of LGBTQ history kind of revolves around things like Stonewall, things like getting marriage equality, and the AIDS crisis. And those are all really big pieces of Mm -hmm. history but they don't really define the community and they sort of cast things in sort of a dark light and so he wanted to focus on some of these lighter more joyful moments that were just as important to so many people Um, he said that he was interviewing a lot of these older people who had lived through the AIDS crisis and seen all these horrible things happened and he was watching them light up as they talked about their nights at Dugan's Bistro because it was really just some of the best days of their lives which I think is amazing and definitely something that should be talked about more. Is there anything else that we should touch on with this story? Anything else sticking out of the bearded lady's hair? Um, 
I don't I don't know if I can think of anything else. I know that another another popular thing she tended to have in her beard were sex toys, so that's another fun one. <laughs> I, but... I've, I've never seen the bearded lady, and there's so many like there. I feel like the bearded lady's in a lot of cartoons and jokes, so mm-hmm. it just become kind of popular. I didn't know actually this was the root of it. But... Yeah, I think that I think the root is probably like the the bearded lady that went around in circuses, for instance. But I mm-hmm. think that this character was sort of a way to reclaim that idea of, like, making a joke out of bending gender norms um, and instead making it just this, like, over-the-top, incredible, subversive, queer person. Mm-hmm. Well, they definitely had to have had very long hair. I yeah, don't, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even think that could fit in your hair. No, your hair is definitely, I don't think like, I much could. longer than mine. <laughs> well, Miranda, I, if that's all, I know there's one place where people can get the rest of your reporting, and that's ColumbiaChronicle.com. Sure is. Another casual mention in this article. <laughs> Miranda, thanks for coming in. Thanks, please. And thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more in our print edition available on campus on our website, ClumbyChronicle.com, and our additional coverage on social media. We are at CEC Chronicle on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and The Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible with the collaboration of the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX, Chicago's Underground under the leadership of the Chair of the Communication Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride. Chronicle Headlines is produced and hosted by Blaze Mesa, Kendall Polidori, and Yasmin Shika. We'll see you all next week.